HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, and welcome to the start of the fourth season of Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA Law School, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today as the studio is my co-producer, Jenna Liute. Many of you will remember that Jenna joined me here in the studio for several episodes last season, and I'm thrilled to announce that Jenna is going to be becoming a permanent co-host moving forward, which means you'll be hearing more from her as she takes the reins for more hosting duties and more producing duties. So welcome, Jenna. Thank you. So excited to be here. To give a little more background, uh, Jenna joins the show with many years of food policy experience, including at the New York City Health Department and working with me at the mayor's office during the Bloomberg administration, and most recently as a consultant in the private sector for a major food company. I'm excited for Jenna to share her perspective on these issues as we kick off the season. Thank you. It's so, so great to be here. Um, okay, so for today, uh, 2015, we know, was a big year uh, in the food and ag world, from the dietary guidelines to school meals to the cage-free egg craze. And 2016 looks to be shaping up to be even more exciting. Today, we'll be recapping some of the most important food policy events of 2015 and forecasting what can be expected in the coming year. Joining us today to delve into these issues are two of the most respected names in the in food policy journalism world that grace our inboxes each morning. We have Helena Bottomiller Evich, a senior food and agriculture reporter at Politico, where she covers food policy from inside the Beltway, and Chuck Abbott, editor of Food of Ag Insider, published by the Food and Environment Reporting Network, who has covered food and agriculture policy in Washington for three decades. Helena and Chuck, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you for yeah, the invitation. So as Jenna said, we're, we're turning to um, what was going to be a great summary of what came last year and what she called 
the exciting <laughs> developments that at least for Jenna and I, it's going to be an exciting year in food policy. Um, we wanted to start off, Lena, by turning to you just to hear your thoughts on some of the biggest, I mean, a lot happened this past year, but what, what are a couple of things that you saw as um, major food policy developments in 2015? Yeah, thanks so much for having us. I think this is a great uh, it's a great time to look look back and and look forward. And when I was taking a look at what all happened in 2015, I actually had a hard time narrowing it down to a list right. <laughs> that was uh, short enough to even discuss. But I mean, really, truly, it was a it was a busy year. I mean, everything from this huge fight over the dietary guidelines and you know what exactly the federal government should recommend as far as you know what is a healthy eating. Uh, pattern. We had a huge fight uh, with the meat industry over that. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration decided to all but ban trans fats, so really cracking down on the remaining partially hydrogenated oils that are in baked goods and candies. Uh, that was a really big deal for the food industry. Uh, the FDA also decided to um, push not only an added sugars label, but also a daily value for added sugars. So that would be a a new part of the nutrition facts panel. uh, And it's really a controversial move. uh, And just a lot of debate. And daily value, meaning a suggestion for how how much much sugar? Yes. So the, the daily value would be based on recommending that people not get more than 10% of their calories uh, from added sugar. Uh, So there would actually be a percent next to uh, the added sugar portion of the nutrition facts. And if you look at nutrition facts panel right now, there's already those percentages listed for fat or sodium or fiber. Uh, So this would add a line for added sugars. Um, And it's a controversial uh, idea, especially in the processed food industry, because, uh, you know, they argue that added sugars are, you know, no different, you know, processed by the body no differently than the naturally occurring sugars and that it's sort of unfairly singling out uh, this ingredient. Uh, I think FDA hopes that the food industry will reformulate their products to sort of dial down added sugar if they know people are going to look for it on the label. Right. Uh, so that I guess big, on, big and on the other side, a lot of people have seen that as long overdue and sort of finally catching up to some international recommendations. Right. The, so the the recommendation actually is very much in line with the World Health Organization's uh, recommended limit. So, but it's controversial nonetheless. So we're definitely going to hear more about that. Um, at toward the end of the year, last month, uh, the FDA super busy year for the FDA. Um, they decided to approve the first genetically engineered food animal, and that was of course the GE salmon, uh, which was uh, dubbed Frankenfish. Right. Some people call it Frankenfish. If you're Lisa Murkowski, you're uh, the, the senior senator from Alaska, you call it Frankenfish. Right. Mm-hmm. Very, very upset about this to the point where she's holding uh, right now the nomination uh, for FDA commissioner over it. So that has caused a splash, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, earlier in the year we had um, a really major um, uh, sentencing uh, really, I think a historic sentencing for the CEO of the Peanut Corporation of America, Stuart Parnell. Uh, he was handed down 28 years in prison for his role in a 2008-2009 peanut butter salmonella outbreak uh, that killed nine people. And a lot of people, I think, remember that as, I mean, first of all, it was a major news event, uh, but it really drove the uh, passage of the Food Safety Modernization Act. So now, years later, uh, you know, the court 
has kind of waded through the case, and uh, he got 28 years, which sent a really big signal to the food industry that the government's going to be taking these cases very seriously. His brother got 20 years, um, and another uh, company official got five years. So really uh, unprecedented, almost unprecedented uh, sentencing there. Um, and then, you know, I just mentioned the Food Safety Modernization Act, that those final rules started to came, come out uh, this last year, and those are going to be huge, mean huge changes for the federal government's regulation of food safety on farms and in food manufacturing facilities and overseas. So really um, a transformative, you know, ambitious, there's, there's a lot for the government to do, but they took really major steps toward implementing that law last year. And those are just some of the, you know, I could have named 10 other things, but those were really, I think, the ones that stand out right. on my beat. And I, I think we're going to um, come back to you, Helena, and ask for a little bit more detail in a minute. But, um, Chuck, I would love you to weigh in on um, just sort of top line what you think some of the big ag stories of 2015 were. Okay, thank you. Like like Helena, it's like Helena said, it's hard to come up with a short list, and we actually sort of swapped lists, and we have some of the same ideas, and so I'm saying some of the things she would have said, and she said some of the things I would have said. But among the things that are worth mentioning, during the, during the past year, number one, EPA decided to relax the what's called the Renewable Fuel Standard, now in shorthand as the ethanol mandate. Um, that's a recognition that second-generation, more advanced, cleaner-burning biofuels are just not coming to the market at the time that they were expected, so it's impossible to, 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 for the government to say people have to use fuels that don't exist. Uh, we had the, war, the largest animal health emergency in U.S. history, which was the, uh, the epidemic of bird flu, which killed nearly 50 million uh, chickens and turkeys, uh, last spring and, and into the uh, late winter in last spring, there's um, concern that the bird flu will come back this year. Um, the World Health Organization's Agency for Research into Cancer classified processed meat as carcinogenic to humans, which is the strongest uh, classification that the agency uh, uses, and it said red meat was probably carcinogenic to humans, which is the second strongest uh, finding. Earlier in the year, it uh, also said two widely used herbicides, 2,4-D and glyphosate. Also, you know, we're in that list of you ought to be aware they could, they might be carcinogenic. Yeah. Uh, then, continuing on this the hit list, the EPA issued its Waters of the United States regulation, which drew hundreds of thousands of public comments before release. It tries to define the upstream reach of the Clean Water Act. And this is significant to EPA because it says that one out of three Americans gets drinking water from the types of streams and uh, waterways that are covered by this regulation. Um, agriculture and home builders hate the rule and have te- gone to court to try to block it. Um, can, and can and, you give a little, I think people who are following food and ag issues have seen, you know, so much about about. Um, this rule and WOTUS, but haven't necessarily understood what it really means um, for, for farmers. For farmers, and I guess yes, for you at the as the end line consumer. Okay, well, the uh, for for consumers, it's more you know it's the end result of trying to ensure clean water for drinking, trying to prevent uh, water pollution in the nation's streams. Um, for farmers, the concern and the farmers have always been wary of EPA regulation. 
they, you know, the, the largest farm organization in the country, the American Farm Bureau Federation, with 6 million members, uh, was the lead organization in rural America in fighting the rule. Um, it says that uh, it's classic overreach by regulators, that, uh, that it uh, would end up with EPA regulating dry ditches and farm fields. EPA says no, it's only, you know, it's, it, it, that it's not extending its jurisdiction at all. Um, it's at this point notable that um, EPA and the Farm Bureau are tied up in a court case uh, involving the, the EPA pollution diet for the Chesapeake Bay. At this moment, um, we're waiting to find out whether the Supreme, whether the Supreme Court will hear the uh, Farm Bureau's uh, appeal. Because at this point, it's lost at the district uh, court level and at the appellate court level. Um, Chuck, um, I, I have a quick question. With I don't know if this is related, but with everything happening um, with the water crisis in Flint, do you think that that situation could impact the outcome of WOTUS? Um, it, that, that would it would be um, it would be it would have to be a tangential effect, since um, the uh, appellate court that's hearing the U.S. appeal appellate court that's hearing the WOTUS case, I think, is in. Uh, Oh gosh, it's out on the plains, and the uh, the arguments that are being that are being presented on WOTUS are more you know, go more to the reach of the Clean Water Act, not not a municipal water supply. And well, I should stop there. Okay, okay. So not really, maybe in maybe in public perception, but right, perhaps so. But uh, one other thing I know that you have reported on this year is the TPP, and we just uh, saw a headline oh, right. today about right. the um, upcoming date being scheduled for the signing of that. So uh, tell us the significance of that. Okay. For well, the Pacific Partnership is a free trade agreement covering 12 nations who together uh, provide 40% of the economic uh, economic product in the, in the world. The two big players are the United States and Japan. For the United States, the benefits mostly are uh, bigger, you know, greater access to the Japanese market. I mean, the other countries are are important because the other country, those two other countries, includes Canada. But Japan, because it's such a big part of the world, the world economy, is the big prize. Uh, and with you know New Zealand starting the clock running, um, you know, the United States has its own timeline. The, Internet, the U.S. International Trade Commission held hearings in the last couple of weeks. It has to produce a report some, you know, by, by some point in May about the impact of TPP. There's also clocks, you know, there's the timelines that are running about how long Congress uh, has, has to examine the, the bill before it can, can consider uh, whether to approve TPP. Um, the practical matter, the political practical matter, is that this is a contentious enough issue. A lot of people would like to put it off until after the election, into the lame duck session, or even you know into 2017 when a new administration takes office. One of the reasons why I say it's contentious is that um, it was a close call for Congress to pass uh, Trade Promotion Authority, which is a fancy way of saying it's a bill under which Congress agrees to a short timeline for consideration of trade agreements and to vote on agreements without any amendments. So it's a strict up or down vote. Um, anyways, yeah. and, and in getting, TP, in getting this, 
fast track authority passed, only 24 Democrats in the House voted for trade promotion authority. So for the Obama administration, Democrats, to pass what's supposed to be one of the bigger achievements in trade for the for the Obama administration, they have to get a lot of Republicans to vote with them. Right. So this is a place where there's these, um, I guess, like a m- number of issues in food, actually, but where the things aren't so obvious how they break down on right. party lines. Um, right. So before we turn to some forecasting for 2016, I think we want to have a chance to go a little deeper on at least a couple of these issues. And Helena, going back to the things that you that you had talked about, you know, I'm curious to hear from you. A lot of this, some of which is still open-ended and is going to be fleshed out in 2016, but a lot of the things on your list, you know, they really were big fights. And I'm, I'm interested just in your kind of day in day at reporting, who is it that Congress people and staffers are hearing from? What is driving these debates? And do you think that there's, um, you know, a different tenor to some of these disputes than there has been in the past or not necessarily? I think part of the reason there's been such a pitched debate over all of these issues is because the Obama administration has been relatively aggressive uh, in its um, in its agenda for food. And I know a lot of you know food and health advocates would argue that you know they, Obama has gone nearly far enough on X, Y, and Z issues. But when you take it together you know, uh, particularly on trans fat and added sugar, uh, they're really pretty bold and pretty controversial in in what they're pursuing. And so I think that that the agenda has really kind of upped the ante for the debate. And, you know, food industry groups are uh, very active in Washington. You know, they're they're very good about making sure that uh, members of Congress that maybe have food processing facilities or jobs in their district tied to food uh, are keyed into these debates. So on the flip side, though, you also have a lot more public comment. So, um, you know, Chuck mentioned a couple issues where, you know, WOTUS being one of them, where there's just thousands and thousands of public comments. Uh, food safety has also attracted a ton of comments, tons of comments from small farmers and added sugars, nutrition facts. I mean, these attract tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of comments. So uh, I think the combining the agenda with also the increased interest in food issues, it kind of creates the environment for there to be louder debates and, and certainly more contentious fights. Well, we're going to hear more about what's coming up for next year on that front. But I think first we'll take a, a short break and we'll come back and dive in. there. It's Steve Jenkins. I'm with Fairway Markets. White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. 
And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers, artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's heritage turkey, Japanese steaks, Berkshire pork, or Navajo churro lamb chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at heritagefoodsusa.com for more information. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with journalists Chuck Abbott and Helena Bottom-Miller-Evich about the biggest food and ag policy issues from 2015 and forecasting what's in store for 2016. I now want to turn to, to 2016 in, in a bit more detail and hear um, a little bit about some of your predictions for the year ahead. Um, Chuck, I'm going to give this first question to you, but um, Helena, feel free to jump in. Um, afterwards, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the meat industry specifically. They're coming okay. off some recent wins, if you will, with the, the DGI guidelines, not including recommendations to decrease consumption uh, uh, and, and the final rules not addressing the importance of sustainability in our food system. Additionally, COOL was repealed in December, removing the qu- requirement to label country of origin for meat producers. And yet, dis- despite these recent gains, there seems to be a f- some indication that the overall tide in public opinion may be turning against the meat industry. So I'm wondering, um, Chuck, what you think 2016 will bring specifically for the industry? Well, the, um, on the economic side, it's going to be a, uh, for producers, um, it's going to be a less profitable year. The, uh, we had record high prices uh, for cattle, hogs, and poultry in 2014 due to a combination of events, including small U.S. supplies, strong export demand, strong demand at domestic demand. And producers responded last year by increasing herd sizes, which means lots more meat is coming to market this year, and prices went down. One of the interesting aspects of the, um, of the classification by the International Agency for Research on Cancer involving processed meat and red meat was that uh, it helped helped drive down uh, pork prices, hog and pork prices, last fall. Um, Chris Hurt, an economist at Purdue University, uh, estimated that hog prices dropped 25% in the month following the IARC classification of red, red meat and processed meats as carcinogenic. Wow. Now, there were, there, were, there were other factors involved, which I mentioned, the um, increase in herd size, meaning more animals are going to be available for, for slaughter, and the strong dollar has really cut, really curtailed exports of U.S. pork, which has been a you know, 10% or 15% of U.S. pork production in recent years. So there's a lot, you know, so as I said, one thing you can, you, this seems fairly clear based on economic forecasting is that the year will not, you know, people won't make as much money per head in, in raising livestock. Um, yeah, I also wonder. And then though, you still have that question okay. about, you know, meat, you know, per capita consumption. 
Americans eat a lot of, you know, compared to other countries, eat a fair, fairly large amount of meat. And uh, when the IARC, that's the World Health Organization Agency on Cancer, um, put out its uh, recommend its classification, uh, its director, Christopher Wilde, said that these findings further support current public health recommendations to limit intake of meat. Uh, that's, that was a quote from, from Mr. Wilde. Mm-hmm. The, uh, of course, the U.S. meat, US meat industry um, would disagree with all of that uh, and argue that you know there's great uh, that protein, you know, animal protein is a great source of a lot of nutrients besides calories, and that it should be part of a uh, part of the diet. Helene, so there, you... there will be a lot of there, there will be a lot of arguing on that front. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Were you going to so. jump in, Helena? Oh, I just wanted to say I've also seen, I mean, I think Chuck brought up really interesting points about the, the economics and sort of the, the fallout from that announcement, but I've also seen a couple of headlines that uh, meat consumption or meat sales at the consumer level, I don't believe were impacted in a meaningful way, which is sort of interesting that, you know, maybe there was a little more concern that c- consumers would change immediate buying pattern or buying habits, but I don't know that I've seen any evidence that that's happened. What about, um, I mean, I, I read these kind of like trends for the, for the, for the next year, you know, in, in maybe more mainstream um, food publications, but it seems like vegetables are kind of moving to the center of the plate and there's more interest in whether or not there's antibiotic, you know, the, the, the level of antibiotics in our meat supply. So, I mean, any, any kind of like policy recommendations that you see might happening be you know in light of kind of public perception um this is um, here. i think for the most part this uh this innovation and promotion around these new plant-based uh particularly meat companies sort of their fo- faux meat or plant meat you know the the different innovations that are coming out i think that for the most part those are going to be pretty private sector driven um, I mean, there are there is definitely language in the dietary guidelines that promote uh, plant-based diets as a healthy eating pattern. Right. Uh, but I don't foresee the government really coming out and and uh, promoting that. Um, but there are some interesting policy issues that start arising. I mean, I think a lot of people followed the whole Hampton Creek definition of mayo uh, dust up. Yeah. Uh, which you know, Hampton Creek. For those of you who don't know, um, they make a egg-free mayo that uses pea protein instead of eggs, and they ran into, you know, violating the definition of mayonnaise, and they've, you know, they've since worked it out with FDA, but um, some of the, I think, uh, status quo of, you know, the policies that we have may may not fit perfectly with some of these new types of products that are coming on, and there, there may be other sort of scuffles like that to come. So speaking of the private sector and it's both it's how it's how the industry is really affecting the policy environment, but also reacting to it. There were a couple of major breaks this year, not just uh, more of those up and coming companies like Hampton Creek, but some major players made breaks with some of their industry partners on significant policy issues. So we saw Mars uh, coming out in favor of the added sugars label. And we just recently saw Campbell's uh, making their big announcement on GMO labeling. Where do you see that going? Um, how do you think that the big food players are going to be navigating some of these evolutions that we've been talking about? Do we, will we see more of this? 
Helena, you um, want to take that? Yeah, Helena here. Um, <laughs> I, uh, the, the added sugars divide in the food industry, I think, is one of the more interesting sort of backstories uh, in food policy right now. Nestle and Mars uh, actually came out in favor of labeling added sugars. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, this is a very controversial issue uh, in the food industry. So to have, you know, Nestle, the world's largest food company, and Mars, another major, major international food company. And candy uh, maker, break, no less. Yeah, candy maker. Break from the pack and say, no, we are for this, um, really complicates, I think, the, the industry's opposition to the policy. Uh, and it also puts pressure on companies uh, to get in front of some of these issues. So the Campbell's, um, Campbell's deciding to be for uh, mandatory GMO labeling uh, is, I think, is probably something that's putting even more pressure on companies to figure this out and decide, you know, how are they going to get in front of this issue so that they're not getting negative publicity. Uh, we've seen companies get boycotted and had their names dragged through the mud uh, over their parent companies funding anti-GMO labeling ballot initiative efforts. So, uh, you know, the one thing I think the bottom line here is the food industry is under an incredible amount of pressure from changing consumer taste, from people wanting, you know, them to switch to egg free or cage free or, you know, gestation crate free uh, sources of protein. So, I mean, there are so many pressures coming from so many different directions that there's no question that boardrooms are debating all of these issues and what to do about them. Chuck, anything to add on that? And well, it's um, it's important to note that um, the uh, the agriculture secretary Tom Vilsack is trying to broker an agreement uh, with the, among the food industry and the GMO uh, labeling community over the issue of GMO labeling, um, which. You know, they supposedly had their second meeting today. Everybody's been sworn to secrecy while they try to work it out. The food industry is, as Helena mentioned, with this decision by Campbell to uh, support mandatory nationwide labeling. Food industry is having a, a is trying to decide the, how to resolve this question. It's come up with an idea of using uh, QR, you know, the quick uh, response codes. Little square, little strange, look, psychedelic-looking mm-hmm. squares on packages. Using those as a way of uh, letting people find out what's in the food. Um, the uh, the labeling community has been pretty strong so far in saying that you know it wants the inform- it wants to see those, that information printed on the la- on the package itself. And mm-hmm. How you how you bring those two together is a uh, fascinating question, and time is running out to, for the at least for the food industry in trying to resolve this because on July first, Vermont will have the first state law that is that goes into effect requiring labels on foods made with genetically modified organisms. Yeah, and I guess we we won't know until at least that date drops if we're going to see more of this state by state approach or if it's going to be able to be resolved at a nationwide level. Um, speaking of time running out. Right. Well, we, I think we have time for one more question. I just want to want to hear from, from both of you. Let's start with you, Helena, on uh, outstanding policy priorities, you know, one or two that, that you expect to wrap up before the end of the Obama administration. Yeah, I think 2016, uh, there will be a big question, first of all, of whether or not food groups can get food, pol- food and ag policy inserted into the 2016 presidential election 
you know, discussion that, Mm -hmm. you know, hasn't been working so well so far. Right. Uh, But on on top of that, I think for the Obama administration in particular, they've got to get nutrition facts, their nutrition facts update completed this year. Uh, That will, they're saying it's going to come sometime in March. I think that's a little bit ambitious, but we'll see. Uh, School lunch, uh, you know, we have a, a, a compromise that just got reached in the Senate earlier this week to sort of you know, find middle ground on how to move forward on school lunch regulations. Uh, that is something that we'll be watching in 2016. Um, and and really, you know, what else does the Obama administration have up its sleeve? Will it do something on sodium? Uh, you know, these are all things we're going to be watching closely. Right. And Chuck, um, beyond GMOs, what 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 are um, some what's coming down the pike in your opinion? Well, the uh, the child nutrition uh, bill is you know the, the big. The big headline item. One thing that uh, is worth watching—not it's a—it's a state level um, issue, mm-hmm. all, not a you know, not a Washington D.C. issue, but it's one that could have national impact—is the lawsuit by the Des Moines Water Works against drainage districts in northwestern Iowa. It wants to hold those drainage districts responsible for nitrate pollution in the Raccoon River. The Water Works uses the Raccoon as its source for drinking water for 500,000 people in the uh, capital city of Iowa. It says that the and the lawsuit asks that the drainage districts be held to, to be regulated as if they are point sources of pollution, meaning they're like a smokestack from a factory. Up to this point, agriculture is considered a non-point source and is exempt from the sorts of regulations that the the Des Moines utility wants to see imposed on the drainage districts. The Des Moines utility also says that it's spending millions of dollars a year to remove nitrate from the water so that water is safe for drinking, and that it's going to need to replace its nitrification, or it's actually denitrification equipment in the near future, and that's going to cost, you know, $180 million. Wow. And it's asking damages in its lawsuit. Yeah, and it's Um, so significant because of this, what you're talking about, this, um, this, erosion of the agricultural exceptionalism that exists in so many areas of the law and whether or not agriculture can be regulated akin to many other industries in terms of these sorts of environmental impacts. So agree with you. That's a, a one to watch very carefully in the upcoming year. Yeah. So I think we are going to have to leave it there. We want to thank you both so much for joining today, sharing your expertise, and look forward to seeing what's coming out uh, in the both of your publications as we keep close watch on 2016. Um, we appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, uh, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Our show is produced by both Jenna and myself, and our wonderful intern is Austin Brynarski. Our show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our show engineer, Liz Smith. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. And before wrapping up today, I just want to take one moment and really take a moment to dedicate this particular episode to someone who made a significant impact in the food policy community and was a friend of mine, a past guest on the show. That's Ralph Logliski, who passed away earlier this month. Ralph was known to many, many people who worked in food policy. He had made significant contributions at the organizations he worked at, which included Wholesome Wave and also Fern, where where uh, Chuck is currently working, um, as well as Center for Reliable Future and, and other organizations as well. He uh, was a friend to me, a past guest on our show, always a consummate professional, someone who was warm, inviting, 
knew how to gather people together and really inspire them towards good action. And so um, just taking a moment to think of Ralph and thank him for all of the great work that he did and carry a little bit of his warmth and enthusiasm and talents into 2016 as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Kim Kessler. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 nonprofit. to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening